Welcome to Continuing the Conversation. I'm Carl Lamuzu. And I'm Glenn Collins. Fos Church is a community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. Becoming rooted as we are reduced to love while we begin reimagining faith. Continuing the conversation is one of the ways that we are trying to create space for an expanded dialogue and interactions based on the conversations we're having at Fos Church. One of the rhythms we keep in play right now, especially in this time of physical distancing, is the habit of reading our scriptures together. This rhythm is called SOAP, and it's a daily plan for reading the Bible and journaling our reflections. SOAP is an acronym that stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. If you'd want to join with us in this rhythm so that you can have some of that community space, you can find more information at Fos Church forward slash soap daily readings that's false dot church forward slash soap daily readings that would be better since that'd be the accurate one so false dot church forward slash soap daily readings our series over the last few weeks have been called the soap sensation is where soap sessions not sensations not sensations that would be really weird that would be so <laughs> Uh, soap sessions, and as you can tell, isolation has done us good. But we will continue. We will continue in this series of soap sessions, and it'll consist of messages pulled from our own daily reflective readings. This week, Glenn is going to lead us through a conversation about finding new meaning in the scriptures as we explore First Corinthians fifteen verses three and four. So, Glenn, let's jump in. But before we hit the head, heart, and hand questions, any thoughts about First uh, Corinthians 15, 3, 4, or the message before we get going? Well, um, in case you didn't get to join us for First Corinthians, Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, is we got to dialogue a little bit about some of the beauty of Paul purposely misreading Scripture in order to create a new expansive story for the people to find themselves in. He sat at this place where... His tradition he came from and his experience within the community that gathers around Jesus had to come into a moment of tension. And it, he goes into this poetics of trying to describe what could be. At least for myself, this always presented a um, unique opportunity and challenge to me because I always want things to mean what they mean. I view a lot of things, especially with um, the Bible, like a blueprint. It's fixed, it's locked in the background. And what goes wrong are really when we misunderstand the blueprint. So we work and we labor to always get the original structure. But what Paul shows is there's a little flexibility in reading. It's not always about what it meant, but what it can mean. And the potential of what it could mean creates space for multiple people to join the community, not just to try to find the perfect time back when, the golden age that we dream about. It's actually that act now of saying we will build what we hope to see and expand the table to the point that we purposely misread to include. Yeah, I, I love the idea that you brought forward that uh, in light of Jesus, like we actually must reimagine um, a new way forward based on community, but also based on the text. And so it, it requires a rereading and it kind of pulls the community, the individual and the scripture itself into this dynamic system of reimagining. And so I, I love how you brought that all together. And so like the biggest part to me was that the new, like when you said that the New Testament itself was a product of reimagination, right? That you, you 
pulled out when when they talk when they often when they quoted scripture from from like the old Tanest, uh, the old testament or the Tanakh, um, they were repurposing that scripture or reimagining what that scripture actually meant in light of Christ, yeah. and that as a community today that we actually get to do that as well as we come to the text. And so I thought that was really cool highlights that you brought forward. And what was really unique, especially in this point, is um, there's multiple traditions of the Old Testament text. There's some Hebrew traditions and there was a few Greek traditions of the time. And in Paul's writings, we actually get to see that he uses both. And at this point where he echoes a passage from the Old Testament, he shows a reading that was the most expansive, that actually disagreed with the other traditions, but he chose it in light of the experience he had of the expanding community. So it was a very, what I've experienced I've now found in the text moment, rather than a more master um, controlling narrative that says you must always obey. It gave him that ability to find the alternative reading. So one, one thing, a question that I had for you actually before we jump into the other stuff was based on that message, like I would say that within especially our Protestant tradition mm -hmm. and, and Western Christianity, um, we have that the text means what it means and it means what it's always meant kind of mm -hmm. language that we would attribute to it, right? And so the, the, the proper uh, or the purpose of reading the Bible is to figure out what the original meaning was. Like, so it's almost like if we can get it right, we can get the key to fit, it'll unlock all this like deep wisdom for us or something like that yeah, yeah. Um, but that's actually not the way that a lot of cultures around the world actually would have viewed this text especially mm -hmm. like this being a Jewish text um, or coming from the Jewish community Jewish community and how they would read the text that it was actually a conversation an ongoing dialogue and that there was actually more said in the spaces between the words than the words themselves and I, and I love that picture because I and, and it feels like you were drawing on that imagery mm -hmm. as you shared the message so I, I'd love for you to just be able to comment no, on that um, before we go on it's one of my uh, favorite uh, rabbinic sayings, is they said in Genesis 1, it starts with berit, and the um, be sound there is an open-ended word, so it just, it, they don't have it closed. It, it would look kind of like our C in English. And the rabbis use that to say, in the beginning of creation, the first verb of creating was open-ended, and my apologies, is bara, Bara Barashit is how the um, Genesis story starts. And they said because of that open side, it allows us to say that creation is open-ended. And we know all the words that were spoken will be found and they all belong to the creator. And, and that notion of flexibility that it's not always the first and original meaning, although that's a helpful guide. And we don't want to become sloppy or lazy. So we don't just say the literal means nothing because otherwise you don't know what you're rifting. You don't know how you're moving whatever you think this moment is the absolute. But if we have a notion of the tradition and the text and the stories we come from, when we make movements to include, these are intentional moves towards the other, intentional moves to bring people into a space that gives us a freedom that you couldn't do unless you've actually practiced well what it is to read a more literary approach. So when you do riff, you're riffing on purpose for the inclusion of the other. Right. So working from trying to get a literal reading to then moving to a literary reading, then to moving towards an actual rifting of the reading or a responsive reflective yeah. reading. That's awesome, man. And um, if you're an old Bible nerd, you might um, actually hear some of the remnants of what the patristic age said to where you had levels of reading that say everyone can do the literal reading, the plain meaning of the text. Then you had 
a symbolic reading of the text and then you had a spiritual reading of the text but they said you had to be in all of them and what's ironic for our our protestant traditions now is we flip those notions that we say the highest reading is not the spiritual anymore we say the highest reading is the most literal but when the church was first starting they thought that when you could reach that spiritual spot that found symbolism and meaning that wasn't inherent to the text, that was something that you could read into, but you were aware of the literary, was the most meaningful reading. Mm. That's good, man. That's good. All right. So we're going to jump into the formational learning time right now, and that's head, heart, and hands. And formational learning is just like a format of asking questions that help move from like the mind, like so like thought questions that kind of are a little bit more abstract or help us to kind of pull apart what we're learning, and then heart, that help us to reflect on what we're learning, and then hands, that help us to actually put into practice what we're learning together. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to just jump into the text, I mean, sorry, into those questions now. And so let's jump into the head question first. So Glenn, um, how do we find new meaning in the Bible in a way that is life-giving and healthy? Well, at least for myself, the way I have found new meaning that has some boundaries, because when I hear life-giving and healthy, um, it creates a tension I have to walk between, which the healthy aspect of it says I still recognize boundaries, I still recognize limits, that I say it's, it's not a free-for-all. But the life-giving creates room for new life, new meaning, and new people, not just possibilities, but we have to root it in the experience of people to be present in these readings. So how I have come to find new meaning is in studying these ancient texts where like Paul gets that freedom to choose a reading that allows for more people to be included, I've tried to allow my experience of hearing other people's stories to impact me in a way that I try to find the room for them to not only be present, but their voice to be honored and listened to within the communities that I sit with. Mm. Do you want to give us a little bit more about that? Um, let's say like that, that final point that you just made there. Would you clarify? Um, just moving into the part where like creating the space part mm. to listen. Well, that life, that creating that space means that I can hold my reading of the text. Um, but that doesn't then demand that you are subordinated to my reading, that we actually have a sense of mutuality there. So when we look to um, create room, we start asking the bigger questions of, of what is life-giving within this community. And this situates us very much within the particular. Because sometimes, like last week, you heard us discuss that when we talk about love, we can talk about it in the abstract, that we have this huge theoretical kind of ethereal it's, it's way above our heads and it never quite gets its feet on the ground. This demands that we're very feet on the ground particular. I can't name what is life giving unless I'm sitting across the table from that person and creating space is in that person, not, not them as a theoretical person. Like what communities do they represent? Are they straight? Are they LGBTQ? Are they white? Are they black? Are they Canadian? Are they American? Not, not labeling to say, um, I can fit you into a box, but actually sitting across the table from that person to hear how God has impacted their life. Where it's, it's hit me the strongest was my first semester in grad school. And I came from a fairly, um, it was a gracious background, but we had no sense of difference simply because my hometown, I don't know if you come from someplace so small, 
that when you acted up, you would get home to your mom saying, oh, the Estes is called. So you were at the Jackson Ranch causing trouble. Like it, it was that small of a community. Yeah, I totally relate, bro. Yeah, like it, it was so small that if I insulted you, then your auntie would be upset with me and she would know my family and it, it, it would be a scene. So we understood there was such a thing as different. We just never actually met it in person. It was a theoretical concept. When I moved to Boston and started grad school, suddenly it was all these people who represented traditions and cultures that I didn't recognize. It was people whose desires, loves, and, so, and social systems didn't immediately reflect my small town with two stoplights to where I knew everybody. And it was sitting there in their stories and hearing them cry, hearing them say how they, if they could only do this, then they would be able to find God again. Um, hear them wrestle through. That made me realize that um, my limited reading of the text didn't have the room to hear their story in the way that was so honoring as um, they passionately gave up things to pursue who God is. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. That's good, man. Um, it's, it's interesting because like, like I, I would kind of because I, I, I agree with what you're mm-hmm. saying and I agree with like that notion of the particular and the individualized there. Um, but I would just say that moving into the finding life giving and healthy, I would also want to add that um, learning to to actually contextually read the text as as community. Mm. And so understanding individual and the individual and the particular is, is good because it helps us to understand our community. So it kind of feeds into the into the thing, but then taking it to the notion of the community the community context. And I think often when we think of contextualization, um, we always think of, of of like major difference, right? And mm-hmm. or we juxtapose it against or like contr- contrast it against this idea of normative, but not realizing that our normative is actually just a contextualization, right? And so, like for example, like when I was in, since you said we're allowed to throw yellow cards out. Uh-huh. Eh. And we've adopted something says once in a while we um, like to use words that may or may not be normally used. So you've heard it, but you're like, wait, I would like a refresher. When we're saying normative. Normative, um, just meaning like it is, it's given primacy or it's given, <laughs> it's given the space within, within commun- in the community as this is how things are. So it'd right? be the assumed right? Yeah, the assumed right way to do something, right? Like in in North America, uh, there's an assumption that culture is a certain particular way. Mm. Um, And to go against that would be to move against the the normative culture of of society, even though it's actually a contextualization. It's not Mm -hmm. normative. It's normative for a group of people who want to then make it supreme for everybody, you know, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Um, But... It was it was interesting like that, that that when I was in seminary in in Fuller and we we began to actually deal with like contextualized theologies in a, in a major way and it was always this this but the way that they they taught it was here's normative theology which is actually Western European theology and then you have Latin theology you have Korean theology you have liberation theology you have black theology you had all these other theologies that got to have cool adjectives in front of them but theology well that's white dudes who are from Europe, right? And so that was normative and then everything else was contextualized. But reality is, is that all those things are actually normative to those contextualized things. And Western European old white dude theology happens to be a particular kind of contextualization. And this is actually a a really beautiful point Carl's pulling out is whenever you're telling your own story, 
where you place the adjective to qualify something is usually what you see outside of the normative. So if you're able to have and assume you tell the story without explanation, then that's usually your assumption. Like this is just what everyone would agree to. As soon as you part, start putting like if you have to qualify theology, because it's all a version of theology. It's all of us making sense of the stories we tell to talk about God. And you say, oh, well, this one is theology. This one is African theology, Latin theology, or when he said liberation, which is a certain subset in the states of the theology that came at a particular time, or you can, it's also come from Latin America, and you would see that as the other kinds of theology, not theology proper, it always tells your bias because when you qualify something and you don't assume that it, it is the main story, those are the lenses or biases that we see through. Yeah. And so I, I would just add to that, that like in order for us to actually like find new meaning in the Bible and like read it in a life giving and healthy way mm -hmm. would actually be able to sit with those different contextualized readings of the text. Mm -hmm. And so like we have we, we can when we when we do that, it actually will help us to find our community's contextualization of the text because we begin to understand how we read it. Versus um, if I read it from a perspective of like, I, like well, here's just an example, um, like Glenn read a book by um, James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And for him, he was like, every pastor in America needs to read this. And I would agree, every pastor should read it because I also want James Cone to get the royalties I from the book. I still stand behind that statement. <laughs> Um, but it was interesting because for him, it gave him insight into a context that he didn't actually have, right? But then for African-American people who, who, who have read that text or, or black people who have read that text, they're like, there's a lot of like head nodding, like, yep, yep, yep. Because it says a lot about their experience already and the way that they've understood it. But it also opened up doors for them to be able to vocalize or speak about the ways that they've actually understood theology, but never had words for it necessarily because mm -hmm. of the way that other, other theology was... Uh, put front and center, if that makes sense. I'm trying not to use massive words. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's and that is a beautiful way to say um, for the life giving because um, if we're keeping it tightly to the passage we're talking about of 1 Corinthians, what Paul does towards the end is say, um, you know, death wears, wears your sting. Um, but the verse he's pulling from, the section of scripture, he, it, the technical term would be echoing. And that would be related to how biblical texts deal with other texts. So actually goes the other direction. It says, death, bring on your plagues. But in the rereading in the Greek Old Testament, when they translated it, the translators weren't a big fan of that reading. So they made it, oh, death, where is your sting? And says, will God save you? Yes, because... In the older text, they had the implied no. They're like, that's not life-giving. And so they brought it in, this, in the same way. The way I was always taught is the way to appropriate the text, because it is appropriation. It wasn't my culture, my people. Um, it was very strict. And James Cone opened up a lens to say, you can't even talk about the text until you can see the Christ in the lynching tree in front of you, because state-ordered executions haven't gone away. And that expanded to a life-giving way to say, wait, if I can recognize the humanity, the beauty of the person in front, that's the only way that I can start getting new meaning to ancient text. Yeah. No, that's awesome, man. And so just kind of, like, just a summary of that point, I would say, is that, like, like what Glenn said about listening 
to the people across the table from you. So actually understanding the text within the within the actual stories of the and the embodied and fleshed stories of the people in front of you. And then I would say I just added to that to take it to the larger part of community, but then understanding different communities' contextualization of that story as well. well also, I'd say um, the point that you you brought, which we really need to hear, is if you want to know who you believe is on your side of the table or at the table, it's that guttural response to your first time saying, well, that's not the good reading, that's not theology, or as he said, who you'd put an adjective by to qualify it. Yeah. Those, it's not bad. It just helps us see um, who we consider in our group at the table so that when you say I'm listening to the other, you actually have an, an other that you would say, I need to take special moments to make sure I'm leaning in towards this voice. Awesome. Well, with that, let's, let's move to the next question, the heart question. And so the question that we had was, as we reimagine our faith together, what changes do you see coming that cause you to be hopeful for our future? Um, and again, this is pulling from Paul's choice of a more expansive reading. It caused him to be hopeful, even while, um, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, um, Corinth had a fairly established reputation for being rowdy. So even in that rowdiness, he could see a hoped-for future. Um, so if you've been part of the Christian tradition for a while, sometimes our hope doesn't make us hopeful for this world. Um, we're asking that question to be very specific. How, do, how does this rereading or how does our engagement help us to be hopeful for the here and now? And I'd say for myself that what is making me hopeful is actually the ability for so many communities to be able to be heard and name their realities. Because we're, we're realizing um, in our ability of from finding the Dead Sea Scrolls that showed us multiple traditions that influenced the Bible to our ability to read more than ever the different voices, because before you only had books published. If you're from positions of power. Yellow card. Let's take it from kind of this high level intellectual academic of having the, the need to even quote Dead Sea Scrolls um, to bring it down into the people, like regular people can actually begin to interact with what you're saying. So without having to do all that background work, because the, truth be told, they're not going to go read it for the most part. You should. <laughs> You should, but I'm just saying they're not going to, and nor have they had the opportunity to do it necessarily. Okay, um, so how do you bring that in to a little bit more concrete? Well, okay, for the little more concrete um, for me, uh, what makes me hopeful is this frees me from having to have control over the conversation to say that it is not only um, acceptable, but it is right and good to say that I can find God in other people's voices. Hmm. So it's not a fearful thing to say that you have multiple readings. It's not something that I need to be defensive against of saying, maybe you read this differently than I do. But this is the very characteristic of a living, vibrant, and healthy community. That's awesome. Uh, I, I love that, actually, that we'll call to hear somebody come up with a different way of reading the text. Like, so... Um, just an example, like when we do soap together, like the scripture observation application prayer stuff, um, every single time I hear people's different readings and some of them I'm like, that was pretty cool. Other ones it's like, didn't understand what you said. Um, but to be able to hear those different takes on, on what the Bible is saying, on what, I, I would use the language coming from a Pentecostal background, what the spirit is saying in the midst mm -hmm. of that um, is an act of hope for you. I, I, like, um, so to me, that, that's, that's awesome. Like, cause I feel like, Quite often, um, 
we we love we, we find our hope in uniformity um, versus difference. And I think reality, especially as we under, begin to understand the world and more as a more complex. Um, bigger than our reality kind of space. Um, when we begin to encounter difference as hope, it actually opens up an expansive possibility for us. And so I love that, man. That's awesome. So um, what about you? What, what is that entity in reimagining our faith together that enables you to see a hopeful future? I think for, for me, the thing that enables me to see a hopeful future is that um, the, re, the act of reimagining, the act of reinterpreting um, or restoring even um, is a community act. And that as much as like I want to make it like often, how to put it, I've read the text and I've, and I've heard stories and I, and I do the opposite of what I should do is, is that I hear you tell me a story and I'm saying, oh, that's like my story. Here's where and, the, and, I, and, I, and I regurgitate your story now consumed by me. Um, and I would say that the act of reimagining our faith together is, is the antithesis of that. It's actually taking the story and then beginning to let the story breathe from these different perspectives. And for me, I, I, I find hope in that because it allows me to actually say it doesn't have to be about me and I don't actually have to say anything about it. Mm -hmm. I don't even have to interpret it. I don't even have to like, like interpret someone else's story. I can just let that story speak for itself. And the more that, the more that I have found myself able to like give into creating that kind of space of listening Mm -hmm. and, and, and allowing to go forward, um, I hear more beautiful pictures of the future than had I tried to garble up the story for myself, if that makes sense. Well, at least the way I'm hearing it is rather than interpret, would you say, um, I don't have to justify? Because if your story, if my first step is to say, well, here's how it lines up with my story, so that part's okay, because that's usually what we do is we repack, and the repackaging your story is my story. I'm taking the parts that I would say these are justifiable statements mm -hmm. that you get to sit in. Yeah, um, that, I think it'd be a good way, or even like like to appropriate someone else's mm -hmm. story in a sense might be a good way to say it. You know, you know what I mean? Um, like we we tend to appropriate other people's stories and then pull out the pieces that we like, um, kind of like somebody rocking dreads without understanding the culture that it comes from. We tend to do that with people's stories and with the way that people understand themselves in light of scripture and, and other things. Okay, so in that moment of hope to say that I don't have to justify your story to experience your story. Um, I'm actually curious, what, what's the tension there for you? Since at least for me, um, once in a while there's a tension that if I'm not creating checks to justify, am I letting anything go or, um, yeah, um, that's, a good, that's a good point. Um, honestly, I'm not sure I can even name the, ten, the, the tension fully for myself. All I just mm -hmm. know is, is that it's been a transition for me mm -hmm. in the way that I've held on to things. Because before, I, I needed to justify your story. Or actually, truthfully, I needed you to justify your story for me. Mm -hmm. I needed you to explain why you were legitimate in this space. Um, and if you couldn't do that, then I held you with, with suspicion and contempt quite often. And so as I've transitioned out of that way of hearing the story, and, and a 
lot of it was from dealing with with you know as as as, as a person who was uh, multi ethnic, um, dealing with with racism and different things like that, and and constantly feeling like okay, like this person could have, has the potential to hurt me. This person has the potential mm-hmm. to to say something negative and derogatory. Are they a person that I trust because they've justified their story to me, or are they a person that I don't trust? Right, like if that makes sense. Well, no, that that points to something actually. Um really interesting is that what takes away our hope in the hopeful future is out of either a movement of fear or power because that notion of making somebody else justify why they're okay to be present is a movement of control and power to say I have not been allowed in this space so now that I'm creating space you need to um, tell me why you should be allowed in this space That, that actually takes away the hope but the ability to um, almost move from that sense that I, I can trust that you're not coming to harm, that you actually do have insight about who God could be, creates us a little more vulnerable because we can't so easily um, create the boundaries and lines to say, here is the exact structure. We have to trust that not only does God speak, but does that God speak to people who wouldn't experience it the same way I do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and, and, I, and I think like that's the beautiful part when we begin, like we use the metaphor of Christ table all the time mm-hmm. in, in our community and that uh, Jesus is the one that holds the guest list, not us. Yeah. And I think for a long time, um, my faith was based around kind of a bouncer version of faith. It's like I wanted to control who could come in because it made it feel it made it me feel safe mm-hmm. versus. Um, I didn't actually care. That's not true. It's, it's not that I didn't care. I just actually didn't think about wh- whether other people felt safe. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the process of being followers of Christ is that we actually, our job is not to judge or even say bar or say who who is allowed into the space, but is actually to create a, a, a space of hospitality. Um, Especially, you know, like using using the juxtaposition that that I think like Paul and other biblical writers would use a lot of times. We create hot spaces of hospitality because all around us are spaces of hostility, hmm. right? And so um, that, for me, I guess would be the, the the movement where I've gone to towards hospitality and, and seeing the and seeing that as the hopeful move first versus hostility and seeing the need to actually defend first or something like that. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and since we've got to quote a couple of rabbis today, um, if you ever get a chance to read Israel Knoll, who is a current rabbi, he says the beauty that we have is the divine symphony because the symphony's um, richness comes from the different voices of the trombone, the saxophone, and the drums. If they all sounded the same, it'd be a monotoned mess that had no difference. And that and no difference meant no beauty that it's in our difference in the ability to to reach notes and to have voice that we create a symphony. Mm. That's awesome, that's beautiful. All right, um, any, any final thoughts on, on the heart question? Uh, no, I'd, I'd say if, if we're going to summarize a little bit what we were just saying um, is that we have found hope in reimagining our faith as we've realized that the beauty of difference is not a threat but a virtue of the community to come. Hmm. I like that. I like, I like the way you put that. That's good. All right. Well, let's jump to the next question then. Um, what practice could we try um, to help us learn to lean into a responsive reading of the Bible? Right. So to actually practice this notion of finding new meaning and being open to difference. Hmm. Well, 
I've kicked off the other question, so why don't you kick off this one? All right. Um, well, for me, I think one practice that, that I would recommend to people is to actually like read read the pass read like like if you come to a passage, um, find a a source. Um, whether it's actually sitting down and talking with somebody or whatever, and 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 begin to ask people what that what that passage means to them, right? So figure out like what, what you what you how you heard it, like write down like almost lectio divina, like reflective style, like okay, here's here's how I heard this when I when I read that, and then begin to to, to under then begin to like ask people for difference in it, and just write down like simply write down how they interpreted it or how they heard it, um, and you can you can do that by actually talking to people or just reading books from different cultural like cultural commentaries that kind of stuff like that um because i think it'll be an expansive practice to say what i like i heard it about dot 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 but um you know so and so heard it this way and that actually made me think about it from a new perspective i've never heard it that way before and i, and I know that's happened to me many times like when we've been doing soap mm -hmm. and um i, I think a few, it was a few weeks back and and one of the people that we said well she and, and she said that coming from a first nations background she's like it would actually be the i would have heard that the antithesis of how you heard it just because of the, the dynamics of how she was she was raised and it just opened up a new way for me to understand that passage and it was it was a really really cool moment for me mm. so i I would just kind of create those spaces to, to hear other people's stories reflected in the text that you're reading, if that makes sense. Oh, it doesn't. Also, that sounds like a proactive way, because sometimes um, we can be a bit passive when we say we're trying to hear other voices. If you come, you sit down in front of me and you insist on being present, then at that point of you coming, sitting and insisting, I'll give you a listen. Um, this sounds like you're saying um, if we're a little bit proactive to say what are voices that actually don't mirror mine and how do I sit with them that we'd be able to put this as a responsive reading and something that we can activate within our lives. Yeah, exactly. So how, how about you, man? What would be a practice that you would recommend? Well, uh, since we've been having to be in this time of physical isolation, um, it delimits a little bit. So to make it a little bit more practical. Uh, I was pulling from two wise sources in my life, um, an old minister I used to work with and my wife. Because <laughs> uh, an old minister I used to work with would have a discipline because he was, he was Pentecostal. And in Pentecostal readings, you want multiple meanings of a singular text. He would challenge us to have five different sermons from one verse. Because he would said, if you can only say one meaning from it, one, are you listening to God? And Two, how are you going to preach more than twice? Um, and so I'd say uh, for this last for this last thing that we would pull that section of scripture, which was um, First Corinthians fifteen um, fifty four to fifty seven, and we tried to memorize it this week which is something that I actually been meaning to get on. Um, so that, um, as my wife said, she said one of the things that she has found life-giving was we've tried to practice contemplative prayer to where you sit in uh, um, darkness and silence in order to try to hear and to reflect. But that we'd use memorizing, this is where she pushed. She said it, she thought it had been a really good thing for the community if we would say, let's try to memorize this passage together but each day journal off the contemplative prayers reflecting on that passage. 
So from those verses, that's that's something that I've been trying to do this last week is um, the contemplation because if um, an old minister I worked with and my wife both agree that these are good ways, it usually means I'm not listening to somebody. Awesome, man. That's good, man. Right. Well, any any closing thoughts before we, we jump off here? Well, due to the wisdom of a friend of ours, we're trying to learn how to summarize. So I'd say um, if we're summarizing the head question of what we talked about, was that to find life-giving um, new readings that hold healthy boundaries, one, situates us in a community that recognizes that we are not the universal community, we are a particular community at a certain time and place that enables us to say, here's our reading, but what are the other readings? And the healthy part of it is holding intention that we still want to listen to the historical church, the literal readings of the text, so that we can move towards literary readings of the text that can engage in a, a bit of wordplay and nuance. As we come into reimagining our faith together, that this way of reading that allows for nuance will create difference, but this difference is hopeful. This difference is a characteristic of the community to come, not a threat that we're doing it wrong, which will allow us within the hands to step into different ways of hearing and engaging other voices to where we'll find multiple meanings of a singular text. Awesome, man. Thanks for summing that up for us, man. Um, and so with that, we just want to close close off, but uh, always with an invitation. Uh, you can join us uh, online right now since we aren't gathering in person due to uh, just the nature of the season. Um, but you can join us online at www church, and you can find all the different ways to connect with us there, whether it's uh, joining us at 5 p.m. on Sundays for our online gathering or joining us on Thursday mornings for soap or different ways of connecting with us. And so we'd love for you to connect with us.